0: You're listening to The Mix on Civ Mix, hosted by Liz Benjamin and Joe Bonilla. Welcome back to The Mix. This is Joe Bonilla. As we conclude this Memorial Day weekend, we are filled with remembrance of those who we have lost, not just recently with the coronavirus pandemic, but those who have fought valiantly to defend the freedoms that we all enjoy here in America. Here in New York State... Beaches were open, parks were open. I actually had an opportunity to go to Jones Beach in Long Island this weekend. And unlike some of the other news reports from happening across the country, and I think also supported by the less than ideal weather, you saw New Yorkers actually following the guidance, wearing masks, socially distancing, And there was a unification factor in terms of this was truly a united front in terms of really working together to to get past this latest war that we have here. On this episode, we spoke with Avidan Rodriguez, who is the president of the University of Albany. Liz spoke with him, and you'll hear that shortly. I also spoke with Joaquin Hoke and John Scott from Fourth Family about their efforts in their nonprofit, how they're recalibrating their operations with the coronavirus. Without further ado, here's Liz Benjamin.
1: Mr. President, I love saying that. so great. (laughs) How many times does one actually get to say that? But anyway, it's wonderful to have you with us. Thank you for being here in the mix.
2: Thank you so much, Liz. It's a pleasure to be with you.
1: Uh, and we should know how. It's been a while since I saw you last. And just for a little bit of background sake, how long have you been at the helm of U. Albany now? It's been a bit.
2: It's. Uh, it. I'm going on three years. In September, it will be three years since I've been at the University at Albany.
1: But you had a very long history in higher education. I mean, this
2: was not your first rodeo by far. No, I've been in higher education since 1991.
1: So I guess to jump right into it, have you ever seen anything in your career to the extent of what we're experiencing now and um, in the significant impact manner that it might have on higher education writ large?
2: You know, no, I I have not, as, as you may know. Uh, part of my research focuses on the socioeconomic impacts of disasters. So I've been studying, yep. you know, the impacts of Hurricane Maria in Puerto Rico, Indian Ocean tsunami in and Sri Lanka, Hurricane Katrina in the Gulf Coast, Hurricane Mitch uh, in Honduras, etc. But this is this is a global pandemic, right? So this is not circumscribed to one geographic area. It's not a sudden impact onset type of event. And it seems that it will not be an event that sort of just disappears as time goes by. And the ramifications, social, economic ramifications globally have been quite uh, devastating for communities throughout the world. And the impact on higher education has been truly uh, dramatic and transformational.
1: Hmm. Well, interestingly though, none of your work had, had actually delved into. You focused on natural disasters. I guess a, a pandemic is a sort of natural di- disaster, but your work had never delved into that realm before.
2: No, my work uh, never focused on on these types of uh, of events because we. We, I typically focused on what you call uh, natural disasters. We call them hazard events such as tornadoes, hurricanes, tsunamis, flash floods. And like I said before, these are typically, you know, sudden onset events, geographically bound. They're short term, typically associated with physical de- uh, devastation. And although they have social and economic consequences, uh, they're not as uh, impactful as the magnitude of this event. So we're not looking only at Puerto Rico and. Hurricane Maria. Now we're looking at the entire globe as a consequence of the impacts of COVID-19.
1: Yes, and as we are having this conversation, uh, the globe hit a really troublesome milestone, which was 5 million cases. Uh, 5 million is a mind-boggling number. I can't even get my head around that,
2: really. It is, and unfortunately, uh, the number of cases uh, will continue uh, to grow, and the number of deaths associated with this uh, devastating event will unfortunately also uh, continue to grow uh, for the foreseeable future, Uh, and so it is a major challenge uh, before not only New York State, not only the United States, uh, but the globe.
1: Well, let, let's just talk a little bit about the similarities before we delve into you know, the specifics regarding higher ed and New Albany. But the similarities of an event such as a tsunami or an earthquake, I mean, certainly those wreak havoc and devastation in a great equalizer sort of a way, but in terms of the recovery, those who are financially stable from a socioeconomic standpoint, and also it tends to be, though it depends on where you are in the world, of course, um, more of a minority and then subsequent Uh, impact on those communities. We're seeing that similarly here, that minority and low-income communities are disproportionately paying a price in this crisis, both physical and financial.
2: Right. I mean, if you want to talk about commonalities, that might be one of the common things among uh, these types of events uh, that these events, whether it's disasters, hazard events, or uh, in this case, COVID-19, they tend to disproportionately impact uh, minority communities, low-income communities. You know, I focus on social and economic uh, vulnerability. So we look at factors such as race, ethnicity, uh, poverty, and how these individuals are disproportionately impacted by by these events right one of the interesting things about uh, these types of events is that uh, they do not create uh, these events do not create poverty they do not create food insecurity they do not create uh, uh, issues of this nature right these issues just simply come to the forefront as a consequence of, of these events and these are uh, uh, these populations given that they do not have the social and economic resources are not only uh, more impacted by these events but have much greater difficulty in recovering uh, from these types of events. So whether you look at, you know, the poor communities in, uh, uh, in India Sri Lanka following the Indian Ocean tsunami or the poor communities in Puerto Rico or the poor communities in the Gulf Coast, right? These events did not create poverty, mm-hmm. uh, but certainly uh, these individuals are disproportionately impacted and they lack the resources to engage in active uh, recovery processes. So it takes them a much longer time as well to recover.
1: Well, which dovetails into the or sort of segues rather into the next point, which is that's part of the reason why it's so important that publicly funded higher education survives. I mean, higher education, I think that, you know, the governor talks about reimagining education, though he has um, been clear and or he's, he's qualified that to say that nothing can really fully replace the rigor of in-person face-to-face engagement between teacher and student and also fellow students in a classroom amongst one another. But it's public education, universities like Albany that really are the entry point to the American dream for so many people.
2: Absolutely, right, and so the focus needs to be also on enhancing, expanding, and strengthening education and making our education accessible, right, uh, to the communities uh, throughout the state of New York and beyond. If you look specifically at the University at Albany, 40% of our students, undergraduate students, are underrepresented minority students. A third of our students are low income and first generation students, right? These are the types of communities that we talk about being disproportionately impacted by these disaster events. And we know that. With higher education, come a better jobs, become social mobility, better income. And thus, it is critically important to enhance and strengthen our societies that these communities have access uh, to higher education and they have access to affordable higher education so that they can get a high quality uh, education that not only transforms their lives, but the lives of their families and of their communities as well.
1: Well, and to that end, I mean, actually, the list goes on because I was looking it up the other day. I mean, even your health and your life expectancy are improved with uh, the further on that you go in your education. And so there are so many reasons why it's important, but now people are questioning the value of higher education, in part because we are forced not to have the social aspect of the college experience, right? It's really important um, to, uh, to have that. That's how people... You know, basically have like one foot in puppydom and one foot in adulthood, if you will, right? It's their place to sort of try out their wings in a safe space and learn how to interact with one another and learn how to become social with one another or what have you. And right now, uh, we just don't have that.
2: That's right. I mean, and if you take a look at, you know, an individual's experience from, you know, birth to uh, age 22, one of the most transformational experiences that they will have is being on a college campus and getting the education that they need, interacting with faculty, with other students, developing experiences in uh, community engagement, research, uh, study abroad, whatever opportunities uh, we offer. And this not only results, as you say, in a, in a degree, it also results in better paying jobs. It results in higher life expectancy. It results in even uh, uh, less impacts of mental health issues, etc. So even much happier lives as a consequence of these very important educational processes. That is why it is so critically important that we continue to focus on enhancing and expanding higher education.
1: So do you believe that that access will be Maintained in the future. I mean, there are some dire predictions that people are making out there higher education will be the purview of the rich higher education will only continue if Universities end up sort of quasi partnering with the private sector, which I think a lot of people find concerning vis-a-vis Research that's done and independence among faculty members, etc. I mean, what does the future of higher ed look like to you?
2: You know, I think that also as a consequence of the impacts of COVID-19 on institutions of higher education, which in terms of our, our finances uh, can be and will be devastating for many institutions of higher education across the country, both public and private. And so uh, this is we should view education as a public good, right? This is something that should be accessible uh, to our communities, not only to those that can afford an education, but those that cannot afford an education. We have to put the processes in place, right? We at UAlbany, for example, have made significant investments uh, in scholarships. We depend on state funding. We depend on federal funding. We depend on, of course, uh, tuition. We uh, depend on the research enterprise to generate the funding uh, in order to make sure that we provide a high quality education, but that it is accessible uh, to our community members because it is critically important for the future of our communities, for this country, and for this world to continue to promote Higher education and access to higher education.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, it is also the governor, as as we are speaking just a few hours ago, sort of laid out a timeline. A lot of people are anxious and asking questions. You know, will there be in person education at my K through twelve school? Will there be uh, in person education at uh, you know um, my higher ed institution? Should my kid? Uh, defer for a year and maybe you know, take a gap year, as one, as one might say, um, I think they, they, they use that term in, in Europe or where have you. I mean, there are all sorts of questions about whether, and of course, priority one is to make sure that you keep people safe, your faculty, your staff, mm-hmm. your students, the communities who interact uh, with your campuses, et cetera. Um, but you know, the governor says June will be the deadline, we'll have some kind of guidelines and decisions in June.
2: Right. You know, there's so much uncertainty, especially regarding what will happen with COVID-19. There are models that predict the resurgence of uh, COVID-19 in late summer or sometime in the fall. There's models that uh, that uh, project sort of a, a mixture of COVID-19 with the annual flu, right? And so we're looking at all those models and all those projections. We're taking a comprehensive look at what's happening with institutions of higher education across the country, but we also have a group which is called UAlbany Forward Together, which is a steering committee uh, and a, a number of planning groups we, in which we have 175 faculty, staff, and students taking a comprehensive look at multiple scenarios uh, for the fall, whether it be in-person class instruction, whether it be uh, online, fully online, or a hybrid mode, right? A survey that just came out this week actually showed of us uh, college students that were surveyed across the country, seventy-eight percent of them want to be on college campuses to continue uh, their degrees. Uh, as you say, we we've got two major uh, goals in mind. Number one, the health, safety, and well-being of our campus community. Faculty, staff, and students, and to provide an excellent, high-quality education and services to our students. Uh, but we're focusing on our plans. We should have our uh, plans. I will be reviewing plans actually next week, the first week in June, for you, Albany. Of course, we're following the guidance of the Centers for Disease Control, New York State, and SUNY. And as I said, we're monitoring things across the country in the world of higher education. Uh, but you know, at the end of the day, our goal is try to minimize the risk. The risk cannot be eliminated. So our goal is to mitigate risk and prepare uh, to have the best instruction, best academic instruction possible while trying to, as best as possible, uh, protect the safety and health of our communities.
1: Yeah. Do you believe that, um, you know, the future of higher education will look significantly different than what it did? I mean, obviously, you know, people aren't going to be all jamming into, um, you know, a, a big party, for example. I, I don't know, it, you know on graduation day that people are going to be tossing their ha- hats around and like, you know, hugging one another, which is really unfortunate, of course. Um, there's I don't know how you're going to do sports, for example. I mean, there's right. so many questions, right, about... Uh,
2: that remain right. There, there are many many questions that we we don't have answers to now and we will be exploring uh, as we move on uh, it, It's not a matter of if higher education will look different. It will look different uh, And it does look different today, you know in the past two months. We've gone from a you know primarily uh, in-class person uh, instruction right uh, mm-hmm. to uh, All a remote education telehealth telecounseling Teleadvising. We've done some major transformations at this institution and throughout the country in a matter of months. We've also learned quite a lot. And there are strategies and there are initiatives and there are plans that we put in place uh, for uh, this incidence with COVID-19, which have actually worked quite well, have been more effective, more efficient. And we are thinking about, well, this is a good strategy. We will continue with that uh, moving forward. The other aspect is, the, the, as I said before, the financial impact. Uh, that COVID-19 has had and will have on institutions of higher education. So we are defining and refining who we are as an institution of higher education Mm. moving forward.
1: And to the degree, I think we're a little bit in New York at any rate, in a holding pattern, uh, because the governor has been reluctant to say definitively what cuts will be. I mean, we know they'll be across the board, certainly, and that they will be 20 percent and they will be significant. But he's been reluctant to say one way or another because he's waiting to see what happens at the congressional level. And certainly the congressional folks need to get off the stick and make a decision here because, you know, people are really waiting on tenterhooks to hear from
2: them. Right, I mean, part of the the cuts that the state will make will depend on the availability of federal funding, and you know, you, Albany, we we depend on state funding, we also depend on federal funding, so that is critically uh, important for us uh, as we move forward. So we. In the, the same way that we're developing uh, different scenarios with the U. Albany Forward Together group uh, for how we uh, begin instruction in the fall, we also have uh, different uh, budget scenarios that mm-hmm. take a look at, at different types of budget cuts that we may receive uh, from the state. That take a comprehensive look at our enrollment numbers uh, for the fall. International enrollment will be hard mm-hmm. hit by COVID-19. Uh, it was already uh, uh, experiencing some difficulties prior to COVID. COVID-19. So these are all uh, issues that have significant financial implications for an institution such as the University at Albany and how we move forward uh, as an institution. And we are working and navigating uh, through all those models. So having to make important, uh, very difficult decisions, but also understanding that there's still a lot of uncertainty, which we are dealing with.
1: Well, uncertainty is part of our new normal. It's about 80 to 90% of our new normal. Uh, The thing that we know that we can count on is that everything is going to change, perhaps more quickly than we would like it to, but we have to get comfortable with that. I don't think we have any other choice. So unfortunately, we're out of time, Mr. President, but I would like to thank you so much for being with us. Also to say, please stay safe. You are an asset to the community and we really like having you around. So we'd like you to stay healthy if you don't mind.
2: Thank you so much, Liz. It's been a pleasure uh, being with you uh, and to you and to our audience to also please stay safe, stay healthy, and stay engaged. Thank you so much. Be well, sir. You too. Bye-bye.
0: Are you looking to reach a diverse audience? Advertise with CivMix today. Visit CivMix.com to learn more. Are you ready to rise and shine? Read up on the latest news and happenings taking place in your community each weekday morning on civmix.com. Sign up to receive Rise and Shine in your inbox. Civmix, it's where it's at. Catch new episodes of The Mix each week exclusively on civmix.com. Jakeen Hoke and John Scott are the co-founders of Fourth Family. Welcome to The Mix, gentlemen.
3: Thank you. Appreciate it. Thanks for having us.
0: So let's talk about what is Fourth Family and how did you guys get come together to to co-found this uh, nonprofit.
3: John, you can kick it off. You,
4: you you're better at that. Okay, so, uh, yeah, just to give you a brief history, um, John Keene can kind of give you an idea of how the organization came into fruition and where the name came from. But uh, John Keene and I were uh, middle school classmates at uh, Hackett Middle School. Uh, We were both uh, athletes, um, teammates on the modified football team. Um, We were a part of uh, some pretty successful teams, uh, but we also kind of had the same social circles and uh, developed a really close bond throughout middle school. Um, I ended up getting a uh, scholarship to play basketball at Albany Academy. Uh, Joaquin went on to Albany High School. So we kind of, uh, we, you know, we, we touched base throughout high school, but I obviously weren't as close as we were in middle school. Um, he ended off graduating from Morehouse. Uh, I went off, played uh, basketball at Iona College in L.I.U. in Brooklyn. Uh, we ended up rekindling our, our, our uh, friendship, I'd say about uh, probably around the time we were both graduating. Um, I was going down to Atlanta to, uh, you know, visit someone at the time, and uh, we rekindled our relationship from there. And Jakeen, um had obviously, you know, like myself, really had grown and matured. And every time he spoke with loved ones back home or, or visited um, back home, he saw that there was really a lack of role models um, and things that, you know, were available in terms of, you know, different resources, different programs that, you know, kept kids occupied and and, and out of trouble those, those type of resources were dwindling. Um, so he, he he was starting to give me an idea of his that he had uh, started developing in a, in a class at Morehouse. And, uh, you know, he can elaborate more on that there. But um, it was really at that time, um, when we came back to Albany after
3: graduating,
4: uh, where we we, we we started fourth family and Jackie, if you want to kind of talk about where the name came from.
3: Sure. So, um, you know, piggybacking on that, the they kind of started, you know, we were in the course called social entrepreneurship. And um, basically, you know, we had to come up with an idea that was radical, but yet sustainable, because when I was in school as a finance major, the economy was melting in 2008. And so as a finance major, you know, eyeing the meltdown of the economy and all the dreams that I had of wanting to go and work on Wall Street and trade and eventually become some kind of venture capitalist was just melting away. And it by the time I graduated, it was it disappeared. So I started looking at entrepreneurship as an opportunity to uh, focus on and bring solutions to my hometown. And it was it was pretty much my junior year. I took that course and really started focusing on entrepreneurship as a, as a whole, not just uh, community-driven things, but in realizing in, in that experiment that community is really at the core of all entrepreneurship, and it's really about solving gaps and in in really trying to push things forward as a whole and so um the the name fourth family kind of came about because i had this uh, accounting teacher he's he was from um i think he was uh he's from either nigeria i think he's from nigeria ghana i think he's from ghana and and basically he would start every accounting class with a proverb and you know one time he he had mentioned the uh you know, it takes a village proverb and he kind of expounded upon, you know, the, you know, his daily proverbs. And, uh, this one had actually stuck out to me because when I heard it takes a village, you know, I, I really thought of kind of how I grew up, uh, around, uh, pretty much a bunch of men that were, you know, the, what was considered the, the man, the, the men of men, a man's man. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I just felt that a lot of kids in our neighborhoods just didn't receive that kind of um, village in that, in that embrace. And so, you know, fourth family came about in regards to the new spin on that proverb to say, um, if we break down our family and our neighborhoods down to a nuclear level and and put a number on it, you, you have your first family, which is your mom, dad, sister, brother. You have your second family, which is, you know, grandma, aunts, uncles, and cousins. Then you have your third family, which is extended relatives. And then you have um, that outer, you know, external family, familiar network of friends and people you consider family that may not be blood relatives, but you go through these experiences and these trials with them that you have this forever lifelong bond, which we call the fourth family, which is essentially the community. And, you know, that kind of goes into everything that we do in regards to. Our three principles, which is, it has to be cool, right? It has to be, um, it has to be, what people identify with, and it has to make sense. And I think that you know, it takes a village is a is a, is a proverb that's historically known throughout generations. But um, where the rubber hits the road with our generation, that that that's kind of lost. And so, um, I think over the past ten years since me and John can come back and reconnected, we've really been pushing that in every single thing that we do.
0: And next year will obviously mark the 10 years of doing this. And you guys have seen, have had a lot of success in terms of building out relationships with major philanthropic organizations, but also really fostering, you know, different connections and relationships with, you know, local and statewide, you know, organization and stakeholders from there. Um, to really fulfill this need. And, you know, I don't know if you want to talk a little bit about a few different projects that you guys have done over these past 10 years that can kind of equate the impact that you guys are having right now.
4: For sure. So, um, you know, to kind of circle back in 2011, uh, right when jakeen and I were in the process of getting Fourth Family Incorporated, uh, I would, had obviously returned home and was coaching uh, with the City Rocks AAU programs, the AAU program I played for uh, as a kid. And uh, a player of mine, Eddie Stanley uh, from Schenectady uh, was unfortunately murdered uh, after we um, had a game in the Bronx. And unfortunately, after that, um, we started, you know, really putting things together, um, you know, that we're gonna be resourceful to the community to keep these kind of things from happening. And uh, from there, we started a mentoring program uh, at Albany High School, um, where we essentially Uh, where I was coaching, actually, but I brought in a fellow teammate of mine, John Drosen, who's actually Dr. Drosen now. He's a uh, professor at the University of Pennsylvania, Um, but he's also, you know, our STEM director, and together he and I built a STEM program, kind of conjoint that with the the mentoring program that Joaquin and I had built, and now today we have, you know, programs in multiple schools across the Albany City School District, not just focusing on mentoring, but also You know, incorporating that STEM piece, we've uh, been fortunate enough to travel out to uh, Google, um, formulate some partners out there, do some programming out uh, on the West Coast. We've also partnered with the NBA Summer League, um, where we've gone probably, I'd say, the last four years and ran a court science academy. Um, And that court science academy has touched kids from Las Vegas, Los Angeles, uh, pretty much up and down the West Coast. So we're very proud of that work. Um, but to kind of speak to, you know, what you were saying earlier, uh, we've really just built upon those three principles that John Keen had mentioned earlier and uh, kind of taking it from there. And, you know, our national uh, connections are like everybody else. We have some big things we've been working on, but are currently on hold. Yeah. Um, but we are still formulating a lot of, uh, you know, different things with the school districts to find new and creative ways to kind of use our, our tech savviness to still educate kids and keep them engaged.
0: Well, I think, I think it, and you guys really have honed on, in on something here because you know there's the focus on stem fields and then you have also sports and fitness and i think that's you know the having this diversity in terms of the the fields and the interests is going to be of, of course you know, appealing to those that you're you know you're supporting and you're helping and, and of course you know for, on the yeah. the donor and development side you know is going to speak to them about how do we enrich and invest into that next generation the emergent generation here and of course in the other markets that you're also you know working in as well um so i mean i, I guess that's the other part of it too is that you know as we're all facing you know our own challenges with the coronavirus what are you, what are you guys doing right now to to recalibrate you know fourth family and then what are you guys doing personally to to recalibrate during this time
3: Yeah, I'll, uh, I'll hop in first and uh, let John go. But, you know, I think, you know, just to follow up on that last question, you know, I think the the ability to and, and kind of how I initially framed Fourth Family is it's the, the authenticity and the genuineness of what we try to do and how we deliver, I think, is what the standard is that we have. And so... You know, even in this time, you know, John can speak a lot more to it because he's really been driving the engagement um, with the community, especially the youth. Um, You know, it's it's really about. And the reality is not to kind of take it off course, but, you know, these situations, these times that we're living through um, for for most of our kids, this is daily life. You know, the, the difference is, you know, it's not the weekend. It's just an extended weekend or extended holiday time where you're away from school, you're away from your friends and you're still living in the same situation. You know, um, times are hard. Food isn't regular and there's a lot of stress. Some kids are dealing with different things. And I think that for them, this is like that extended again, holiday, summer break where they're just away from school um, and our kids are strong and they're tough and our families are strong and tough. And, you know, for me, um, you know, we kind of lived through this during the nineties. I tell people all the time, some of the scariest moments that I had was walking home from school. Um, and so, you know, in terms of what we've been been able to deliver, I think it's, you know, like everybody else in, or, you know, working with the community and schools, we're kind of all strapped for resources. We're all strapped for, um, you know, really access at this point. Cause there's so much, we, there's so little we can do legally with the kids and, um, you know, personally, I think from what I've been seeing on my end is just really a a centering of, you know, who and what and how we deliver. And I think for me personally, I don't speak for John, but that starts with, you know, kind of centering and focusing on family and making sure that everybody close to me is in a position where they're mentally good and, and have everything they need and making sure that others that are in the position to do you know they they have everything they need, and I kind of pass it on the job.
4: Yeah, I mean to uh, you know just continue Joaquin's point and to start and from a personal standpoint, uh, you know I I have older parents um, and and a sibling with a you know a learning disability who used to have some some concerning health issues. So, um, all all who you know had this uh, unfortunate you know thing that's been going on so we we got hit with it probably I'd say about in February um so you know they got through that a a few days in the hospital but you know um definitely my mother's from New York City so I had a lot of family you know fighting the coronavirus and um unfortunately a lot of people that I know that you know lost their lives or lost a loved one so um from NBA players that we worked with this was obviously something that nobody planned for um and you know really took everybody kind of kind of by surprise so um, you know, on a personal level, we've, we've, we've definitely felt it. Um, and, you know, just as far as kind of how we, we, we survive and eat, um, everything we do right. in, involves Britain, large groups of people. Um, so when I, when I can tell you, we were literally in the midst of, um, you know, some solidifying, and, and it's not like they're going away, they're just on pause, but some, some really big things for the community. Um, you know, I, I always talk about how we're, we're, one of the things that I think we do very well, is to be able to bring our national resource back into Albany. Um, for instance, you know, doing a basketball camp with Marcus Aldrich, um, you know, five-time NBA All-Star, bringing him out here. These are things that kids in our, our area don't get to to experience. Um, and, you know, I had an interview with Channel 6 last week kind of speaking to about how kids, that's one thing that they're missing out on. Um, And unfortunately, Joaquin and I have uh, already lost a kid uh, to some violence uh, since this coronavirus has started. So it's very concerning, um, you know, but in the midst of that, we're not the types to sit back and, you know, just watch things happen. We've been doing a lot of different efforts, um, joining with different organizations, whether it be the Albany City School District, the Albany Fund for Education, who, who recently honored us, you know, helping them deliver food packages and care packages and school supplies. Um, We've been extremely instrumental in helping the Albany City School District um, communicate with families who don't have Internet, whether it's been working with Spectrum and helping them get hotspots or delivering laptops. Um, That
0: was a question I was going to have for you, too, because obviously, if you guys have a focus in STEM and you have and you have, you know, young people who who may not have access to 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 the technology and then of course having access to to broadband you know what right how do you how do you resolve that right so
4: yeah yeah it's a huge issue um and that's very tough and you know we're not the only ones struggling with it obviously but you know right now it's really about helping people understand you know a lot of the kids that we work with are tier two and tier three students um and for those not familiar with the terminology it just means kids who have some type of you know, um, behavioral issue, you know, emotional distress. Um, and a lot of times, you know, that 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 trauma exists in the home. So we're, you're not only asking these students who sometimes don't have the access, but sometimes the environment is not very conducive to learning. So there's that whole educational process that we've been helping a lot of educators, you know, understand and um, trying to figure out creative ways. No one's figured out an exact answer yet. I know uh, Dr. Karita Adams, who's the superintendent of the Albany City School District, um, whom I, I spoke with uh, not too long ago, has been working directly with a, a board of superintendents and directors that Governor Cuomo uh, assigned to kind of attack this problem and figure out how we can, you know, still educate kids virtually. Um, but it's definitely a stumbling block that we, we've had. So, you know, for our kids that 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 do have it, um, you know, we have been able to, you know, do some workshops online. Um, we're actually. Teetering with the idea of doing a virtual camp every year, we brought an NBA player here to do a camp um, physically, but we, we've trying to figure out, you know, if there's a way to do that virtually. So there's a lot of there's a lot of creative people and smart people that Joaquin and I are fortunate enough to have on our staff, and uh, it's really just a game of you know trying to see what works at this point.
0: So I always end my interviews with a, a more hopeful question here, and as we begin to. To unpause society as we begin to unpause the economy, what are what's the one thing both of you individually are looking forward to to see? Is there somebody you like to see? Is something you like to do when we're able to get past this this pause and this shutdown?
4: so so for me i guess um you know the thing that i'm obviously looking forward to the most is you know reconnecting with you know our, our families um you know there's obviously a bunch of you know business opportunities with the nba and other partners that we have that are very exciting um but you really you know when we we have programs every single day we have an after school program for 3 hours um with 50 kids who are you know 95% of them are living below the poverty line and uh it's one of those things when, you know, one of our initiatives we did was we partnered with Domino's uh, for the last two months and we went around delivering pizzas, you know, to families. And although, you know, it's not a, it's in some people's eyes, it's just a pizza. It's not necessarily the most nutritious thing. Um, Just to see the look on our kids' faces, uh, Joaquin and I play dad to a lot of these kids. Um, So, you know, that's the most thing I'm looking forward to. Um, A lot of them feel safe when they're with us. (laughs) A lot of them, you know, try to seek us out uh, via social media or in the community just because, you know, we have that attachment with them. And, you know, um, I really credit um, a lot of the hard work that we've put in to build those relationships with that. But Joaquin may have uh, other things, but that that's probably the thing that I'm looking forward to most when uh, this opens back
3: up. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's so funny, you know, John has really been the um, the front runner in, in, in our lead. Um, and as it relates to the programming aspect of everything we do, and I'm more of the the business guy, I deal with the the business stuff, the political stuff, and you know, making sure that the the finances are are good. And you know, the past few years, I've been really thrown into more of the program side and being with the kids every day, um, you know, for our morning program, our after school program, um, and, and really being fralled with the fact that to John's point, you know, these kids really value our time. Um, you know, it's, it's so funny, you know, some of the kids they'll get frustrated with me when, uh, you know, I, um, I don't give them the attention. And then I show them my phone and, and they see how many missed messages I have. And they're like, wow, I, you, you actually answered my call when I call you. <laughs> and uh, you know, so I miss those that, that, that level of engagement. And, you know, there are kids you know, and uh, they, they really look up to us, so I, I really value and miss that. Um, I think on the other side of the things that I'm excited for with the economy opening back up is, you know, uh, kind of quietly, I made public that I uh, joined the development company um, publicly and have been working on a, a large-scale development project in the South End that, again, one the neighborhood I grew up in, and literally on the block that I lived on for 20 years, and you know, the fact that I'll be able to really get to the physical side of building the community. And, you know, one of your questions about, you know, the internet. And I think that, you know, I heard, you know, Cuomo or someone on the news say, you know, the internet is, it's, it's such a necessity. It's no longer an amenity like infrastructure right. you need it like you need your gas line you need it like you need water lines and i think that you know in even in building real estate you from the ground up you start to learn how much these neighborhoods need um, and to know that you know as i transition into more of that space and you know more into the private sector again it's you really start to see the value of investment and the impacts that it will have and I think that it will only assist and really transcend everything that me and John have been working on. Um, and I'm just so excited for the future generations of the city.
0: How can listeners support fourth family?
4: Uh, there's a number of ways uh, you can support us. Um, all right, well, we have a, a, a website um, right now, fourthfamily.org um, where there's, you know, the places people can go to find out how to donate or get involved, you know, via volunteering or, you know, um, any other capacity. Um, our social medias are, have not been as active, but they also can uh, contact us via Facebook. Um, we're very easy to get, you know, in, in contact with. Um, but we're, we're at the point now where we're, we're very, um, you know, excited like everybody else, obviously with the country, um, hopefully opening back up and uh, we've gotten, a lot of attention, I would say, in the last two months because, you know, maybe certain people who, you know, live the, the lives like we do, where they're, they're hustling, bustling, moving around a lot. I think they some people really got a chance to kind of sit back and appreciate, um, you know, some of the work that we, we have done and are continuing to do so. Um, Facebook, like we said, our, our website, um, always our, our, our emails are always open as well. Great.
3: Yeah, and I'll and I and I'll just add to that. You know, I think the, the most precious thing that anybody can ask for, especially in the nonprofit world, is time. Um, you know, money goes a long way, but it doesn't compete with time. And I think that, you know, we're in a position where, you know, once the economy fully opens up, you know, we need assistance. Like John alluded to, you know, our social media has kind of been down, but we've been working. And I think, you know, that just goes to show our 10 years' worth of work is – is in work and not being able to tell everybody about it. So we need, we need bodies. We need, you know, minds. We need board members. We need volunteers. We need it all. And that's one thing I will add.
0: Jakeen Hoke, John Scott from fourth family gentlemen, thank you for your time and we'll talk soon.
4: Thank you. Take care. Thank you.
0: Catch new episodes of The Mix each week exclusively on civmix.com.